Welcome to this week's Manor House message. We are grateful you are listening with us today. It is our prayer that you will receive a fresh word from God and find encouragement for every season of your journey. Let's listen to this message from Pastor Garrett. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Religious Affections, uses a little phrase, grace made visible. Edwards is making the point that when people experience the grace of God, not an intellectual assent of, I can define grace, but rather when they're at their worst and they realize Christ died for them, when they finally understood, not in their mind, but in what we might describe as their gut, the very goodness and grace of God, it transforms them in such a way that grace is made visible through them. Grace made visible. It's unmistakable. It's transformative. It expresses itself in ways that display God's glory, God's goodness, and His generosity. In simple acts of kindness, in the giving of time and attention where others would pass by, in using gifts and talents to share God's love, in choosing others over self, it's grace made visible. For 20 years, during this time of the year, Right before we celebrate God giving us His Son, we've taken time to reflect upon how God's grace has transformed us, how He has brought us together as a family, not just to celebrate His grace, but to share His generosity. It's not some version of checklist Christianity. It's grace made visible. It's a response, one of gratitude, one that can't help but share, give, and be generous. For us, grace has been made visible in giving to the poor, engaging with foster care parents and their kids, high school clubs, supporting those on the front lines of some of the most remote nations on the planet, creating spaces for people to find and experience Jesus. It's why we were created. It's why we've been rescued. It's why we've been brought together as a family. It's been grace made visible. We were created for this. Come on. Ben, don't you love that? I I love that video. It it, uh, serves as a reminder for us that uh, we have been bought by a very expensive price, right? That Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life for us so that what? We could give our life for other people. And uh, and that's what this season is all about. Uh, You were maybe here last week, maybe you weren't here last week. Uh, But this season, we call it a season of generosity here in the Manor House family, and it's been for over two decades now. It's been a a family tradition for us to take this time of the year, right before Christmas time, right before we celebrate God giving us His Son, we take time to reflect upon God's generosity toward us and how that impacts our life. How do we order our life and prioritize our life to be generous toward other people. How many think, man, that's a good thing for us to do as a family, isn't it? And, uh, and what it's resulted in is, is millions and millions of dollars over the last two decades that have been given away locally as well as globally around the world to uh, some of the re- more remote places on the planet, as the video said, that, that we have had the opportunity, in fact, you have had the opportunity to sow into people here and around the world. How exciting is that? You realize that when you get to heaven, there are people that are going to be there 
because of your and my generosity. That's a pretty special thought, isn't it? And so we don't take it lightly. We don't, uh, you know, we, we want to recognize what Jesus has done uh, for us. And that's we enter into this season with a season, uh, with an attitude of gratitude, right? With a, just a faith to say, Lord, we recognize what you've done for us. Would you can remind us of that so that we can live that kind of generosity out? Amen? All right. Are you guys ready to buckle your seatbelts right now? We're going to dive in this morning. We're going to not only do some work in the Word of God, we're going to let the Word of God do some work in us, right? And uh, so we're going to take a look. But I'm going to start with a question, and I need your feedback, okay? I need your response this morning. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. Quick question. How many of you in the room that wear glasses or contacts, okay? How many of you wear glasses or contacts? Could you put your hands in the air? Like you just don't care. Come on, put your hands in the air. There you go, there you go, there you go. Come on, you're proud of it. If you're a glass-wearing, contact-wearing person, I want you to put, come on, keep them up, keep them up. I'm proud of the fact that I wear glasses and contacts. In fact, I'm going to join you guys right now. You guys didn't know this. I wear glasses. Hey, hey, what do you think? Yeah, looks good, huh? Well, I wear glasses when I have to read and use the computer but do you know, I can't see if I put the glasses on, so I'm going to take them off. You guys are all blurry to me, you know? Would, that, would you believe me if I told you that 75% of adult Americans wear glasses? Can you believe that? And some of you who were wearing glasses thought you were in the minority, right? You're the majority. So those of you who don't wear glasses, how left out do you feel right now? <laughs> right? <laughs> Think about it. That's amazing that 75% that of us have to wear some sort of corrective lens. About 64% of that 75 wear glasses, and 11% of you wear contact lenses, right? But what, is, what an interesting statistic that so many of us have to wear corrective lenses. Now, for me, uh, the last time I, I, I actually need to go to the eye doctor. I got a confession. So, uh, you know, church is good to be honest and confess, so you guys can hold me all accountable and say, hey, have you made an appointment to go see the eye doctor, okay? So I'm fully expecting next week to have about 100 of you at least tell me, did you go make an appointment with the eye doctor? But the last time I went to the eye doctor was about two years ago, and um, she was an amazing, she was an older lady, and, uh, and she was really into eyes, and so she, how many, you know, a lot of you have gone for eye tests, right? So you know the, the routine, you know? So anyway, she's super excited, but she told me after she had kind of done my test, you know, she, uh, and all the tests and stuff, she said, you know, I've got some good news. You have the eyes of a 35-year-old. I'm 47, by the way, or almost 47. <clears throat> so I felt really good that I have eyes of a 35-year-old. What do you guys think? You know, and I'm sitting thinking to myself, that's just a weird thing to say. I mean, is this like eye doctor flirting right now? Or, or, or is she like, like, I mean, you know, it's like it's an eye doctor. I mean, it's not like you're going to get paid more because my eyes are healthy or I'm going to tip you more, right? It's an appointment with the eye doctor. In fact, I was out yesterday with uh, one of my dearest friends, and him and I go hiking all the time. And uh, we typically take his car because he has a, a better car for, we, we end up kind of going down forest roads and my little Elantra wouldn't make it, you know. So we go out and I get in the car with him yesterday and he has a pair of glasses on. He's never had a pair of glasses on before. 
And I'm sitting thinking to myself, man, you got, you got glasses on, dude. When did you get glasses? He goes, well, man, I just got them. I, you know, I finally went to the eye doctor, and my eyes have been getting worse. And in fact, you know, most of the time I, you know, I've been going out hiking with you, I'm not able to read the signs on the road. And, and I'm sitting thinking to myself, I've been driving with you to go on hikes for years, and you can't see the signs in front of you? So in that moment, I was thanking the Lord that I still had my life, and he now had a set of glasses. But how many of you know that lenses help us see more clearly? Right? And the lens through which you see, right, gives you a perspective. It allows you to see things more clearly. And the reality of life is that, you know, in the same way that naturally, at least 75% of us statistically need some sort of corrective lens to see more clearly, to have a better perspective, so it is in the spiritual world. That you and I, we need lenses to see correctly because the, a lens helps you have right perspective and right perspective helps you to respond to what's in front of you. And you know, if somebody doesn't have, you know, maybe my friend Ben, who before he got glasses, you know, uh, and his, things are fuzzy for him, and if you take off your glasses, things are fuzzy. How many of you know that if you take the glasses off and you kind of see some shadowy kind of figure, it's kind of golden, it's got four legs, I think it's a golden retriever, and then you put your glasses on and realize, no, that's a lion. <laughs> How many of you recognize that there's two different responses that you're going to have in that moment, right? What am I saying? I'm saying this, that having the right lens gives you the right perspective which helps you to respond correctly. And this is where we started last week. If you remember, Pastor Mark, our lead pastor, did such an amazing job helping us understand. And we looked at a story of two people, well, three people really, because it was Jesus, there was Mary, and then there was Judas. And if you remember, they had two perspectives that influenced how they approached Jesus, how they handled life and resource and circumstance. They saw through a lens, and that lens gave them a perspective, and that perspective caused them to respond or to live out their life in a particular way. And if you remember, there were two approaches to life that were really influenced by two perspectives that we took a look at last week, right? Remember Judas? Judas' perspective was fueled uh, by, by maybe selfishness or self-centeredness. It was about him. And if you remember, he kind of put up this fake argument, why don't we sell the perfume so that we can get the money, and then we'll give that money to the poor. But the Bible makes it really clear that what was really going on inside of his heart was that he intended to take the money for himself. That's an approach to life, isn't it? It's an approach that puts self at the center, right? And it's an approach or a perspective that causes us then to live out a certain way. Well, but what was so beautiful about the story that Pastor Mark unfolded for us last week was that this other character in the story recognized and had a perspective where it wasn't her at the center, but Jesus at the center, and because her perspective wasn't about her, but about him, it caused her to live life in a different way. Do you see how her perspective influenced how she approached the circumstance and then how she lived out? And there was this beautiful story where she took this costly perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped with, his, or with her hair his feet and, and she just worshipped him in that moment. 
And what I want you to know and to understand this morning is that there were two approaches to life that were influenced by two perspectives. I guess my question to all of us this morning is, what lenses do we have on? What lenses are we looking for, through? What lenses are you and I looking through this morning that would influence our perspective and then influence how we live life? Pastor Mark talked about two approaches. And what's so interesting is that when you go back, and and I tend to do this, you know, when I'm reading a passage of Scripture, I, I tend to ask myself, man, where did all of this start? If Jesus wanted us to understand that there were two approaches to life, where did all of it start? And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it all started in the garden, Because one of the things that we first see about God is that God is a giver. Remember, it says that God created. He gave night and day. He gave the land and the sea. He gave the sun, moon, and stars. He gave all of the vegetation. He gave all of this stuff to mankind so that mankind would have everything that he could need in their relationship with Jesus and his creation. And so what we see from the very outset is we see God is a giver. That this approach to life that puts him at the center, this approach to life that says, I'm going to be generous, I'm going to live in a way that reflects my creator and reflects my Lord and reflects my master. He is the one who shows up. And the first thing that you see about God is that he is a giver. He gives and he gives and he gives. Now what's so interesting is that when you get over to Genesis chapter 3, where the Bible starts, one of the first encounters that we have with humankind is that we recognize that there's sin that enters into, a, into the human heart and that the first response is what? To take. Because we see Adam and Eve, where God is giving and giving and giving, what we see is that Adam and Eve take the fruit off the tree. And so right from the very outset, we're talking about these two approaches to life And there's a one approach that is is a giving approach. There's one approach that has a generous approach. There's one approach that is open-handed and says, all that I have isn't mine. It comes from somewhere else. And I'm going to freely give because where that came from, there's a whole lot more. We might call it an, um, an abundance mentality. That there's more than enough. We can share what we have. Why? Because it all comes from God. But then there's this other approach that says, man, there's maybe, we might call it a scarcity mentality, which is to say, man, there's not enough. I've got to be in charge. I've got to be in control. And we don't live in an open-handed way, but we live gripping gripping onto whatever we can get. I've got to take care of this because if I don't take care of it, there won't be any left. And I won't have what I need to do life. And I want us to understand this morning that these two approaches to life, they started at the very beginning. What's so interesting is that if you follow the line of Adam and Eve and you follow what happens in Genesis 3 through 11, it's, it's a commentary on sinful humanity totally spinning out of control. Because one of the next things that happen is that Abel comes and he says that he gives the best portion first to the Lord. What is it that Cain does? Cain takes Abel's life. And there's this unfolding of these two approaches, these two paths to life. One gives, one takes. 
One lives in an open-handed way. One has closed-handed and says, I have to be in control. And what you see in Genesis 3 through 11 is this unfolding of humanity spinning out of control. There's murder, there's greed, there's control, and it all builds to uh, Genesis chapter 11. If you're familiar with the Bible, there's a, a story in there about the Tower of Babel. And they're building this tower, and what's so interesting at the end of chapter 11, it says this, we're building this tower so that we might make a name for ourselves. Do you see where this path of life is leading? Selfishness and control and greed and murder. That's an approach to life. And it's an approach that has a perspective that I'm what's most important. But what's so interesting is that in Genesis chapter 12, we see God once again on the scene. And here's what's so interesting about Genesis chapter 12. God picks a man named Abram. There's no redeeming quality in Abram. There's no, Abraham's a great guy. He's a godly man. He's, he's a pagan. And God picks this man, Abraham, and says, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And what we see is, once again, God is giving. God is blessing. God is pouring out himself and his generosity upon this man, Abraham. Not for Abraham's sake, but for God's glory and for God's sake, so that all of the world might know who God is. And so what's beautiful is that this picture of, and this approach to God is him giving, and he gives to Abraham, and we see immediately that there's blessing that comes. In fact, there's so much blessing comes to Abraham that his family ends up having to kind of split up and go to some different territories or go to some different regions to take care of all the animals, the flocks that they've been blessed with. And what's so interesting is that, once again, we see this line of giving where Abraham, Abraham gives his nephew Lot the choice. You pick. And Lot takes what he thinks is the best territory. Well, if you know the story that, the, that Abraham ends up having to go rescue his nephew Lot and that family because they come under attack from the tribes and the kings that are in that area. And we get to Genesis chapter 14. Is this okay, a little bit of Bible history? It's all right. By Genesis chapter 14, what we get to is we get to this place where Abraham has to go and rescue Lot. And, and Abraham goes, and, and the, it says that the Lord, listen to the language, gives his enemies into his hands. There it is again. God's giving again. And so he gives his enemies into his hands. And, and, and what happens is that, you know, Abraham defeats the enemies and and then there's this curious passage that happens at the very curious little story that happens at the end of Genesis chapter 14. Because in Genesis chapter 14, it says that, that there's a, a priest, a high priest of the Lord named Melchizedek. And many of, the, many of the scholars believe that Melchizedek was kind of Jesus in the Old Testament, that he would show up in various places. And, and so some scholars believe that's who, who, who this character Melchizedek is. And here's what's so interesting about how Abraham responds to God's generosity and God's giving. It says this. It says that Abraham gave Melchizedek, and then here's this word, a tithe. It's the first time it ever appears in Scripture, this word tithe. And tithe just literally means 10%. That's all it means. But, but isn't it interesting that that what we learn from this first mention of this word tithe in the Old Testament is this, this idea that Abraham is responding to God's generosity. 
In fact, there's this beautiful verse. Let me read it to you. It's found in verse 22 and 23 of Genesis chapter 14. And it says this, there's the king of Sodom is standing before Abraham and and there's been this great victory and the king wants to bless Abraham. And this is what Abraham Abraham says. He says, but Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord. That's an act of worship, an act of surrender, an act of I know who my Lord is. He says, I've lifted my hands to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 23, that I would not take, there's a word, a thread or a sandal strap of, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Wow. Do you see the significance of what's going on in this moment with Abram? Abram is saying, I'm not taking a dime from you, King Sodom. Why? Because I understand and recognize that everything that I have has been given to me by God. So the first thing we recognize is that, wow, everything comes from God. And even Abram, this pagan man who God picked in the first place, who God blessed and prospered and gave to, this man recognized so quickly where his provision came from. And I find it so interesting that his response was not to take anything, but to give. Perspective, right? What lens are we wearing? How do we see life? How do we see circumstance? Do I see all that I have as coming from the Lord? Or do I see it as a result of my hard work? What's so interesting is that Abraham recognized it came from God. And not only did it come from God, he also recognized that the right response was to tithe, was to give back to the Lord. Why? Did God need it? Does God need that? I don't think so. Well, that's what we want to talk about today. We want to take a look at this curious little word, tithe. And, and, and it, it's a word that literally means, as I've already said, 10%. Why 10%? What's so interesting about the Bible is that the Bible uses the number 10 oftentimes to communicate testing. How many commandments were there? 10. Oh boy. It's okay, you guys can participate with me. How many commandments were there? 10, right? How many plagues were there? Okay, difficult question. How many times were the children of Israel tested in the wilderness? Oh, come on. You guys could, how many? There you go. You got it right. You thought it was a trick question, didn't you? That's why you were hesitant to respond. Ten times, right? Because ten is the number of testing. And this is what we recognize that throughout the Bible, there is a test that happens. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's a a test of trust. And so if you've got your Bibles, would you turn over to our key text today? It's found in Malachi chapter 3. And if you've been around church for any period of time, you know Malachi chapter 3, and you know what I'm going to read today. And if you haven't, uh, I think you're going to see some amazing truth from the Word of God this morning. But before we read Malachi chapter 3, I want us to understand context. Because when we read the Bible, it's important for us to understand the context it's a little bit like, I don't know many, how many of you read Harry Potter. You know, if I was to say, hey, go get me book three in the Harry Potter series and turn to page 56, uh, you might go and get it and read it and go, ah, uh, yeah, there's a guy by the name of Harry, 
and there's a rat. Well, what do you think that means? Uh, I don't know, don't be a rat. You, know, you gotta understand the whole context, right? It's a little bit like the Star Wars trilogy, right? You know, if you go watch, you know, Star Wars, you know, movie four, but you haven't seen the first three, which are really the second, sixth, three, yeah, whatever. Totally confused by Star Wars, right? Context matters, doesn't it? And so when we read the Word of God, we got to understand the context. And so here's what's so uh, important for us to understand about the context of what we're going to read today. The prophet Malachi, or as I like to call him, Malachi, because he was the last of the Italian prophets, right? <clears throat> Malachi, right? He's prophesying during the latter time of the book of Nehemiah. Now, how many have heard of the book of Nehemiah? Right? Remember the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah uh, gets burdened by the Lord and he goes to the king and King Artaxerxes and Artaxerxes sends him and all of the captives back to Jerusalem to go rebuild the walls. And what you got to understand is that the children of Israel had been in captivity, which is the fulfillment of a word God had spoken to Moses to say, hey, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you across the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. If you remember over the summer when we did Culture Matters that they, the Babylonians took them captive. Well, what happened was the Persians beat the Babylonians and that meant that the Persians were now those who were holding the children of Israel in captive. And if you thought the Babylonians were bad, man, the Persians were even worse. And so the children of Israel are in captivity. They're in a foreign land. There are foreign people, foreign gods, foreign cultures, foreign expectations that are being put on them. They don't, their life is not their own. And you know the story because the children of Israel, God moves upon Nehemiah and Nehemiah goes to the king and he releases the children of Israel, sends them back to Jerusalem and he doesn't just send them back, he provides for them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. How many of you know only God could do that? Because what king with all of these hundreds of thousands of captives would let them go back to where they came from. And so the story unfolds. They rebuild the wall. They rebuild it in record time. And, and in Nehemiah chapter 9, what's unfolding is that, that they are beginning to recognize they're worshiping God and understanding what God has done for them. They re, they're reminded of God's faithfulness even in the face of their unfaithfulness. And so God restores them, and the walls get rebuilt, and in Nehemiah 10, they begin to understand and unpack this idea that, man, God, you've been faithful to us, and they start to have this conversation that ends up in Nehemiah chapter 12, where they dedicate not just the city, but they dedicate themselves to a life of fidelity and faithfulness and generosity to the Lord. In fact, they actually make a commitment to bring the tithe into the house of the Lord. That's the context in which Malachi is prophesying. Between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13, there's 13 years that pass, 13 years. And we move from the pinnacle of Nehemiah chapter 12, where they're being faithful and generous and making all of these commitments to the Lord. And by the time you get to Nehemiah chapter 13, they're faithless, they've compromised, they're not tithing, they're not even bothering to go to the house of the Lord anymore. And it's in this context that Nehemiah says, the, or Malachi says these words, for I, the Lord, do not change. I think that's really important to underline. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of our fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. And then he says this, his ad admonition from the Lord to those people, return to me, and I will return to you. How many of you know there's always an open door to return to the Lord? 
And so he goes on and he says this. He says, uh, but, you shall, uh, but you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and there may, that, I, that you put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down upon you, blessings until there is no more need, no more need. How many would say, man, Lord, I want that in my life. And he goes on in verse 11, he says that this is the Lord speaking, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then it says this in verse 12, and I love it. It says, then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. I love God's word. And I love how God starts out in this passage of scripture because God doesn't start by saying, hey, you robbed me. And I think some of us have that kind of perception or perspective of God that, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of up there and he's a little grumpy and he's got like a big two by four, right? Anyone, you ever have, think God's that way, you know? And he's like, he must be really upset with me right now. Wham! You know, big two, four, two by four to the back of the head. But I love this because this is what the Lord is saying to his people. And this is what the Lord always says to his people. He says, I am the Lord that does not change. So even when we are not faithful, 2 Timothy, he remains faithful. And so I love this because this is what Nehemiah is saying to his people. He's saying, hey, I don't change. You're the ones that have changed. I have remained faithful, and my invitation to you is why don't you come back? Why don't you return to me? Because in returning to me, I will return to you, and the perspective that you have gets corrected, your approach to life gets corrected, and guess what? The outcome of your life gets corrected. How many of you, uh, how many of you love tests? Anybody love tests? I think all of us have kind of... Uh, uh, and anxiety around tests, don't we? And, and there's this kind of like, uh, you know, uh, staying up. You know, I, got, I know I got some PBC students here. I've got two college students and a high school student. And, and uh, I think midterms just happened like, it was really funny because there was this like, kind of amped up like level of stress amongst PBC students over the last couple of weeks because they were like, I got papers due. I got tests coming, you know. Give me more coffee. Right? And so there was a little bit of anxiety, right? Because we all face a little bit of anxiety. But you know one of the tests that I've never been anxious about is an eye test. Have any of you stayed up late, couldn't get to sleep, you were cramming like you were on the internet looking at the last line of the eye test? You know the why, the you, the I can barely read that, right? It's one of those tests that we, know, we don't stress over. We don't cram, we don't kind of worry about it. We don't try to kind of figure it out, right? Why? Because it's one of those tests that it's just not to your advantage to cheat on, is it? Because what you thought might be a golden retriever is actually a lion. I want to get the right lens on. Well, this is exactly what God is doing for his children right here. God is saying, I need you to take an eye test. I need you to look at some, you know, and you guys have been there, right? Now, I've heard that, and I'll tell you when I book my appointment, I'll come back and report how my eye test went. But, 
But the last time I had an eye test, and you've been there, right? It was like a one or two. Uh, uh, one, one. Okay, okay, okay. Let's try. Okay, one or two, right? You know the test that goes on. You're like, I want to get this thing right. I think it's one, right? Why? Because you understand that having the right lens helps you see things correctly, which helps you approach things correctly, which produces the right outcome and results. Well, this is exactly what God is doing here. God is saying, you need a test, and I want to test you on some things. And so the first thing that we recognize, and I've already said it, is that God, God shows himself faithful. He doesn't show up and slap somebody upside the head and say, hey, you're robbing me. He shows up and says, let me tell you who I am. Which wasn't that how it was in Genesis? Wasn't that how it was when we looked at Abram? That God shows up and is a giver and is faithful. And, and so this is what exa- what's exactly happening in this passage of Scripture. But remember, they have lost hope or lost faith or lost trust. And here's the reason why. And it's important for us to understand this about the story of Nehemiah. The children of Israel had made this commitment to give to the Lord. They're going to give to him. They're going to be generous. They're going to tithe and be faithful and have fidelity to the Lord and him alone. But 13 years have passed. And there hasn't been what they thought would happen. See, what the children of Israel were looking for, the children of Israel were making something that was supposed to be about trust, they made it a transaction. And what I mean by that is that the children of Israel in this scenario were saying, Lord, we will give this to you if you do this. And the this for them was you'll make us a sovereign nation once again. And so year one passed, and year two passed, and year three passed, and the children of Israel, were st- they were in Jerusalem, but they were still captives to the king of Persia. They still paid taxes to the king of Persia. The Persians would come and take whatever they wanted. And so in this scenario, they'd been saying, Lord, I'll give this to you if you make us a sovereign nation. And what happened over time was that they gave up trusting God because they made this thing about a transaction. You ever done anything like that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or, right? But sometimes we do that with God, don't we? Sometimes we bargain with God. Sometimes we say, well, God, I will do this if you do this. And here's the point that I'm trying to make this morning is that the test that the Lord was asking or putting before them was a test of trust, not a transaction. And the point that I want to make to us this morning is that a tithe that, be, that is to bring that which the Lord gives us, to take a percentage of that and to give it back to the Lord is not about a transaction, it's about trust, isn't it? And this is what the Lord is asking of us. He said, will you trust me? I love this quote from Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic theologian and he said this. He said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. And that's exactly what was going on with the children of Israel. And that's the wrestle that you and I go through every time we get a paycheck. Because what happens is in that moment, do I recognize and who am I going to thank and worship first? Is it him? Because all of my provision comes from him and I'm returning back to him a percentage of that which he gives me because I have an an attitude of gratitude. I have an attitude of worship before God this morning. 
Is that my attitude or is my attitude, no, I gotta take control? Depends on your perspective, doesn't it? And so this is what the Lord is asking of us. He's asking us every time as we go through this journey in life that that it's not about transactions with God, it's about do I trust God? And the question that I wanna ask you this morning is this, is my heart resting, is your heart resting in the goodness and provision of God? Do I believe that God knows me best, God cares for me most deeply, and that God will provide what I need, right? And so when we start to think about in this, this kind of lesson of like trying to understand and learn about the tithe, and the tithe is something that we see throughout the whole Bible. Some people think, well, that's an Old Testament thing or that's a law thing. Well, you know, to be honest with you, Abraham gave 430 years before the law was ever established. And what's so interesting is that Jesus actually uh, affirms tithing in Matthew 23, verse 23, with the Pharisees. In fact, if you were to draw a chart of where the Lord, you know, the, the, the things that the Lord spoke against the Pharisees and the things that the Lord said for the Pharisees, there's a laundry list of things that the Lord had against the Pharisees. But there was one thing that he said or affirmed them for, and it was the fact that they tithed. So interesting, because sometimes I hear people say, well, tithing is, you know, that's law. I'm under grace, Right? And I'd like to propose to you this morning that, man, if you're under grace, it produces some sort of response in us, doesn't it? Because it's so interesting. Some of the last words of Jesus, Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He said this, I want you to go into all of the world and I want you to make disciples. And then he says this, I want you to what? Teach these new disciples to what? Obey. Obey. What Jesus didn't say was, I want you to teach these new disciples that because they've got grace, they got the freedom to do whatever they want. No, no, no. I don't have the freedom to do whatever I want anymore because I've been bought with a price. Paul oftentimes referred to himself as a bondservant or a slave to Jesus Christ because he says, I don't have the freedom to do whatever I want. I have the freedom now not to trust myself, but to trust Jesus Christ. And the same is true when it comes to tithing. Am I trusting myself or am I choosing to trust Jesus? And fundamentally, it comes down to this thought. Do I believe that God knows me best, cares for me most deeply, and that he is the one that provides what he knows I need? And this is what Malachi teaches us because it says this, and I just want to rattle through really quick what it says, that, that tithing results not only, tithing is a blessing, but it's not only a blessing, it results in a blessing. And what I mean by that is that simply this, is that tithing is that thing that keeps my heart where it needs to be in relationship to Jesus, a place of trust. But here's the beauty of what it means to have God's perspective, to approach life God's way, is that it results in an outcome of blessing. And we have to be really careful. Look, can I just be honest? We have to be super careful about what we mean when we say that. Because what I'm not saying is that you become a millionaire. But what I am saying is that he's the one that takes care of all my needs. And I guarantee you, if you were to talk to anybody who has tithed for decades, what you will understand is that God is taking care of need after need after need. Why? Because he's the one that is faithful. 
And so here's what I want us to do. I just want us to stand. And we're gonna respond to Jesus right now by just worshiping him. And we're just gonna say, Lord, I'm opening myself up to you because I trust you above trusting myself. And I believe that you know me best, you care for me most deeply, and you are the one that provides for me. And so with that, I can enter into worship with a recklessness and a freedom and abandonment this morning. So would you just lift your hands to heaven right now? We're just responding. We're saying, Jesus, we're responding to you this morning. Lord, we're saying, have your way in our midst this morning. We trust you above all else. We praise you, we worship you. Thank you for listening to another Mana House message. Our hope is that you find fresh bread for your journey each time you join us here. Until next time.